there's a saying uh, that we've all learned in childhood, and we usually use it as an encouraging kind of rhyme to teach children, uh, particularly when they're tearful or feeling hurt, um, and it's almost universally believed, and it's a complete lie. Um, and it sticks in stones, may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And I can think of few things that are less true that we teach children to sing and chant to one another, because if any of us um, are honest, uh, we all remember those hurtful words, right? And the names that we've been called stick with us, not just for years, but actually roll across generations as the wounds that we've internalized then get played out generation after generation. And simultaneously, I hope in addition to those hurtful words, we remember those healing words that we've heard as well, that shape who we are and begin to rewrite those uh, painful narratives. And what I appreciate about the passage that we're looking at today is that Paul challenges us to think about our words. And I know uh, Dick preached uh, last week on this, and I read um, the notes that he gave, and they're really wise words. I encourage you to pick them up outside. But we're doing two weeks in part because words are powerful things. With words, God created the universe. Right? The word of God sustains the universe that we live in right now. And humanity can equally destroy things with words or build up things with words. People, institutions, civilizations, and cultures. And so Paul, almost like a dog coming back to bone, comes back over and over the passage that we had read to us, um, thinking about how words are used encouraging us, challenging us to use them well. So let me pray that uh, God would use my words well, or guide me to use my words well, um, as we come before him. Uh, Father, it's a dangerous thing to preach on words, using words, uh, knowing the twistedness of my own heart um, and the limitations of my own understanding. And so I pray, um, would your word that's before us in the scripture uh, be our guide, would Jesus Christ's glory be our chief concern? And then would your Holy Spirit, um, who helps us by reshaping our hearts and our tongues, um, be sensitive to what you have to say to us we, today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to pick up Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 25, and really focus at that last end of this chapter. Um, and so Paul says this, Therefore, you must each put off falsehood and speak truthfully in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 25. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their needs, that, they may that um, it may benefit those who listen. And it's interesting that Paul does two things in verse 25 and verse 29, right? He says, put away falsehood and then avoid unwholesome talk. And both of these are framed actually in the context of community, right? Because in verse 25, he says, therefore, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we're all members of one body. And he says, the reason we're doing that is because we're neighbors to one another. And we should act and treat each other as neighbors. We're members of one body. We belong together. We're viscerally connected. Um, and it strikes me as, as I was reflecting on what it means to put away falsehood that at one level, it reminds you as you think about community um, 
little bit about the ninth commandment, right? Do not bear false witness. Do not speak untruths to or about one another. Um, the ninth commandment reminds us. Um, it reminds me of a story, as I think about the ninth commandment, that Richard Mao, the former president of Fuller, uh, often tells. He was in the fifth grade in New Jersey, um, going to a very Dutch Calvinist uh, high, uh, elementary school, as is present in northern New Jersey. And in the 1950s, I believe it was, um, kids from his school got into an, which was, uh, got into an altercation with some of the African-American children who went to the public school down the street. Words were said, a fight broke out, a rock was thrown, uh, Richard was hit, and um, Richard Mao says, um, I used the N-word um, in kind of yelling at those students. Those students, though, those African-American students from public school knew that he went to that Christian private school, and so they went and told the principal. And the principal assigned to Mr. Dykstra, uh, Richard Mao's fifth grade teacher, the punishment. And in um, Mr. Dykstra's favorite uh, way of punishing students was to have them write lines on the board, right? I will not chew gum 20 times on the board uh, after school. And uh, uh, Richard Mao says, I set the record that holds to this day for the greatest number of lines ever written at that school at River side um, Christian school. He was told by um, Mr. Dykstra to write the Ten Commandments 100 times on the board. And he said, I was angry at first, but with some reflection, I began to see um, the incredible theological wisdom of my teacher because I had to write, um, do not kill a hundred times as I wrote down the Ten Commandments, and Mr. Dykstra explained to me, you know, I said, I, but they threw stones at me, and he said, they just tried to harm your body, but you tried to kill their soul. And Jesus says, if you have an angry word in your heart, you've attempted murder, you need, to, you need to wrestle with that. And he said, but I also had to wrestle with what it means, do not bear false witness, because Mr. Dykstra said, you know, what's appalling about what you did is that while they attempted to hurt your physical body, you damaged their soul. You bore false witness by using a term that was designed to degrade, that was designed to humiliate, right? To reduce the humanity of the person in front of you. That boy, whoever he was, was made in the image of God. That boy is somebody who God died for in the person of Jesus and intends to redeem, who could be a member of the body of Christ with you. You did something far worse than trying to destroy his body. And so, for a hundred times, right, I am the Lord your God, <laughs> he began to write on the board. And I wonder how we might do this all the time. We're all perhaps too acculturated not to use the N-word, but don't we so frequently with our words utter falsehoods that actually demean and diminish community, demean and diminish the person in front of us, Right? We're celebrating a 20th anniversary, and so let me use an example from marriage. How easy it is to say words like, you always, and follow that up in some way that is neither truthful nor life-giving, or you never, equally untruthful or non-life-giving. But we use these words carelessly, and if we do, don't we diminish the humanity of the person we speak to? We reduce them to a habit, a set of actions, 
that don't reflect their character, who we have known them to be, who we aspire for them to be in the context of marriage, who God is making them to be. In Christian community, we use other kinds of words in those same ways, don't we? They may not be as offensive as the N-word, but they're words like, well, they're just a liberal or progressive, right? They're just really uptight. They're Pharisee or fundamentalist in the way they approach things. We have ways of reducing the humanity of people, flattening them out. So they aren't people that we need to relate to. They're just pictures that we can describe. But Paul says, put away falsehood. Don't bear false witness to one another. Affirm the truth of the fullness of the humanity and the redemptive work that God is doing in the people in front of us. That's why I think he goes on after speaking about that in verse 25, goes back to it again in verse 29. Avoid evil talk, he says. Avoid this unwholesome, corrupting talk. Um, and too often, I think, when we hear the words unwholesome, or um, we usually think about four-letter words or sexual innuendo, right? Uh, don't let that kind of unwholesome language be used. Don't sound so worldly. And while that may be true, I think it's actually a reduction of what Paul is really concerned about here. It's not just spicy language of some sort. Um, Dick pointed out last week that that word unwholesome is really uh, the language that you use uh, for fruit that's beginning to spoil, right? That you'd see fruit and it would look nice on one side. I don't know if you've ever done this. I certainly have gone to the grocery store, bought fruit, and then all of a sudden I realized I didn't look at the other side. And then there's a bruise, right? And that bruise begins to spread and it begins to destroy the whole fruit. Or it's used for a piece of um, meat where part of it is starting to go bad and it slowly begins to spread uh, as the bacteria moves through the whole of the meat. It's really the anti- salt and anti-light, anti-yeast, right, that Jesus uses a positive flourishing from something small. This is the negative. Um, I wonder how we can use words, evil words, to spread corruption in the same way within the community, right? Isn't that what actually is so damaging about um, gossip or complaint or rumor? That there are small things, there are small conversation, I have with one person, but that corrupting influence that destroys relationship, that destroys community, that destroys trust, that destroys hope begins to spread. And we all know how that happens, right? We've seen it happen in churches, we've seen it happen at workplaces, we've certainly seen it in families where just a small rumor begins to spread. A continual low-level complaining begins to occur. And slowly, morale begins to erode, camaraderie disappears, care for one another becomes reduced as we become increasingly guarded from one another, and slowly, the community rots from the inside. I wonder if that's why Paul connects the verses about put away falsehood in verse 25 and avoid evil talk in verse 29 uh, with verses 26 and 27, which seem a little unusual at that moment, but make a lot of sense, right? In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Because, in fact, what usually causes complaint and rumor and innuendo, innuendo and gossip is that at some level, Paul seems to say, there's something going on in our heart which has provoked a little bit of anger, a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of envy, a little bit of enmity, and so it begins to manifest. Not in constructive criticism of, I think we could do that better, but that's nah, never going to change, is it? It's always like this. They never 
seem to change, right? It begins to happen in a little bit of gossip. Well, you know, if you knew what I knew about what they were doing. And slowly things begin to corrupt. And I think it's incredibly insightful that Paul then says, as you let, as anger happens, you're giving the devil a foothold, right? Because suddenly we become the accuser of our own community. I remember a student I worked with um, when I was back at the University of Chicago on staff. Um, her name was Deborah. Um, Deborah was bright. Deborah was um, gifted. And Deborah was really unhappy with our fellowship on campus. Um, and I'd gotten to know Deborah very well. Um, she and I had been meeting nearly every other week. Uh, I, would be dis I was discipling her. I was also buying her dinner uh, because that was the way I attracted students was, if you come, I will feed you, both, I hope, with the word of God, but also with a meal. And, but she could complain, like, nobody's very friendly at this, at this fellowship. Nobody reaches out to me, and nobody does anything. And week after week, I would offer, as part of our discipleship conversation, well, have you thought about greeting somebody yourself? No, I just, you know, I'm just, I know, that's just too hard. Okay, well, have you thought about welcoming, but have you thought about going out with people? I've bought you at least 15 meals this semester. How about you take some of the money you saved and go invite somebody else out to a meal with you? No, it's, it's you know, they just aren't friendly. And finally, um, I remember saying, you know, um, Deborah, I, I think you have a choice right now. You need to decide if you want to do something positive or you just want to be Satan. And then she looked at me and she said, Professional Christians shouldn't call people Satan. And I said, well, okay, no, fair enough. But, you know, she was, but I said, here's the challenge, right? Um, in scripture, Satan isn't really the pointy-eared, you know, headed red devil, really. The word Satan means accuser, right? And that one of the roles, particularly in the Old Testament, of, that is given to Satan is um, the one who accuses God's people, um, reminds them of their guilt, denies that there can be forgiveness or hope or grace, challenges their standing uh, as people who've been loved by God and who are redeemed about it, who are being transformed by God. And I said, <clears throat> oddly, you are becoming the Satan in our midst. I'm not thinking that you're actually possessed by evil spirits, but you're becoming the accuser. In everything that you say, all you bring is accusation and there are no words of hope or forgiveness. There's no actual desire to change something. And so you have to decide who you want to be in our fellowship. I wouldn't have said it if we hadn't been meeting for months, right? I wouldn't have been saying it if I hadn't known her as well as I had. We had walked through some really rocky periods of her life, and I wouldn't have said it if I hadn't believed deeply that God was at work in Deborah. We left that meal, and I began to watch over the next couple months as her behavior began to change. She would get to the group early and stand by the door and begin to welcome people. Right? She began to welcome people to her room, invited the Bible study to meet there so that she could introduce the people there to her friends. She slowly began to create welcome, and then suddenly she found the fellowship to be remarkably welcoming. <laughs> and she stopped being an accuser. Right? She actually became a source of hell rather than um, a source of continual infection in the fellowship. And I think that's why Paul says, don't let anger take a hold because as soon as you do, you've given Satan a foothold. You become the accuser when you use this kind of language that's untruthful about the people that you see. It may have a glimmer of truth, but it's being used in ways and communicated in ways that are actually untruthful. It's perhaps for that reason that the next verse in this passage is this, which seems a little odd. And anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, 
doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those who are in need. I think Paul is being very practical, right? Um, it's very plausible that at Ephesus, there were thieves who needed to be trained to work and to labor and to be generous. But you can see the progression of thought of how he gets there, right? Don't say untruthful things to other people. Don't lie about them and corrupt the fellowship that you're in. Don't let anger take a foothold so that, like Satan, you begin to accuse the people that you were with. But instead, like thieves who become philanthropists, move from taking and begin to give. Stop consuming and actually start giving, right? Offer something. And I think that's why Paul then begins in verse 29 to reflect again. Don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that they may benefit, that they may be graced um, by, the, by listening to you, right? He says, don't keep taking, actually begin to use your words in order to give people good things, to give them a blessing, to let them experience grace, um, to speak truthfully to them in verse 25 as well as to give grace, uh, as he says in verse 29. How do we speak truth then to one another? How do we give grace in our language? If we avoid the unwholesome, corrupting talk, if we stop saying untruths about one another, then let me suggest that in part it means we're called to speak truth to our neighbor and our fellow member, as Paul says in verse 25. What does it mean to speak truths in such a way that they reinforce and renew community rather than destroy it? I wonder when he uses the, verb, uh, the word neighbor in verse 25, right? Um, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. If, at least for the early church, did they think about Jesus and how he responded to the question, who is my neighbor? Right? Because you'll remember there was a Pharisee who approached Jesus and he said, how shall I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And the man asked him, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story that we know is the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Of a man who had been beaten on the road by robbers, who's passed over by religious leaders until a Samaritan, somebody who is um, ethnically distinct from him, politically distinct from him, culturally distinct from him, not just distinct, but despised by him, right? A person that he as a Jew would not cross the road to speak to, whose country he would avoid at any cost, whose politics he disagreed with shows mercy to him, picks him up, cares for him at his own cost, and ensures that his needs are being met. Then Jesus asked the question to that religious leader, who was a neighbor to that man? And the, Samir, uh, and the interlocutor says, well, it's the one who chose and showed mercy to him. Go and do likewise, Jesus says. What does it mean to speak truth to our neighbor? It's the one who shows mercy, right? Who is our neighbor? It's the person we show mercy to. It's the person, like the thief, who we may have taken from at one point, who we now choose to give towards. Um, I think of my friend Mark. Um, Mark worked with me with, at InterVarsity, but um, whereas I worked with kind of the nerdy, the geeky students, Mark worked with the Greek students. So Mark is kind of everything I'm not, right? Mark is tall. I'm not. Mark is like blonde hair, blue-eyed, handsome. I'm me. Right? Mark is athletic, socially savvy. I'm still me. And one day Mark said when I was visiting him at Purdue, come visit, I want you to visit some of the fraternity houses we do ministry in. I want you to meet the students I work with. 
And we were headed off to go on a short vacation together, so I said, sure, when I go pick you up, let's go visit the fraternity houses. And I had never been in a fraternity house because I wasn't cool enough to be invited nor have, was really that interested or able to party with them. So um, I would go in these fraternity houses and meet these young men that Mark was discipling to lead evangelistic Bible studies in each of the fraternity houses at Purdue. It's a remarkable ministry, and I would meet these young college students who, like Mark, are tall, handsome, socially adapted. I just like, with every encounter, just felt smaller and weirder and more out of place with every conversation. I was like, what am I doing here? And like, these are the people who like, I was afraid of in high school and in college. And, um, and I remember we got to last house and at that point, I'm like only half engaged as you are when you feel a little alienated or you feel different or you feel alone or you feel like you're potentially misunderstood or like you're an insect because I'm sure they what I was the narrative in my head was they were looking at Mark going like why like what are you doing with him though they were all incredibly gracious and um, Mark introduced me to this last group of people and he said hey I want you to meet Greg he works with university he's like my best friend on staff and everything changed at that moment for me Right? Because suddenly Mark, Mark identified me as his best friend. Suddenly I belonged there because I was with Mark. Right? Mark gave me a, 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 a word of esteem. I was his best friend. I felt great. All of the insecurities, like you can tell how insecure I am, right? Just through this story. I'm a gaping maw of need, evidently, and Mark suddenly filled it for me. But what Mark was doing was exactly what Paul encouraged the Ephesians do before, right? If you've ever been saying, stop saying, get to work, and then be generous and give. And that's what Mark did at that moment as he spoke a word of truth that I was one of his best friends, right? He gave me his stature and standing in the fraternity and sorority system. He gave me his credibility to lean on when I was meeting these students in front of whom I was feeling incredibly insecure. He gave me a a platform where I could actually relate to these people, not as a weird outsider who was one of the kids that normally they, in an unredeemed life, may have tried to stuff into a locker, but instead, I was the friend of their mentor. I was the friend of the person discipling them. I had a place there. And I think part of what it means to speak truth is to benabor ourselves, right? To make ourselves neighbors to one another, to use language that says, you are not a stranger to me, but you are a neighbor. You're not merely somebody in need. You are my neighbor and therefore I will care for you. You are part of the body of Christ that I belong to. We belong together. Um, isn't that really what's so powerful at a wedding, right? It's certainly not the overall ceremony itself where people are dressed oddly. It's certainly not the anxiety and anxiousness in the crowd. What's powerful at a wedding is when we change relationships by using words and saying, you belong to me. Right? That's what makes us teary. I mean, we might get teary when the bride walked down the aisle, though they lo usually look uncomfortable and somewhat unrecognizable. Um, right? they, we just don't dress that way. And certainly the men in the front look incredibly uncomfortable. What's profound at the moment that makes us teary that I think you two are celebrating today right, is when a man looks at a woman and says, more than any other person in the world, I choose you. I will choose you now when we're young and hopeful, I will choose you when we're middle-aged and despairing and wonder if we can make it. I will choose you when we're healthy and things are easy, and I choose you when it gets hard later in life, right? And she looks at him and says, I choose you above everybody else in the world. You're mine. I'm yours. I choose you now how you look today and how you might look 20 years from now, 
right? I choose you in all the ways that life will shape us and form us and sometimes deform us. No matter what, I choose you. And I will choose you until we die. That's, right, the moment when all of us suddenly get teary because those relationships have changed. And the world has changed for them because they're using words to reinforce relationship, to, un to um, underlie what we're doing. I think this may be in part what, if you've been following um, the media, the Me Too um, social movement around sexual assault or the Church Too movement, which talks about sexual assault and sexual harassment in the church, um, really is challenging the church to do in part, will we offer our standing, right, our belief, our relationships to those who raise the accusation against others of sexual assault and harassment, will we use words to, to essentially say, I see you, I affirm you and know you because you're my neighbor and I care about you. You're part of the body with me, right? I often wonder if the men who so blithely can blame the victim, well, they were kind of asking for it, they dressed inappropriately, whatever, they came on to me, it should not matter, and we certainly would never put up with that kind of excusing or victim blaming if it had happened to our own daughter or our own sister or our own mother or our own spouse, right? Because we've used words like mother, daughter, sister, or spouse to benebor ourselves to these people. If we were able to expand that and say, I see you and I believe you, and I will act to protect you like I would protect my own child or my own family member, we wouldn't have the hashtag church too. And I wonder if that's what those promoting it are just desperately crying out for. Will you see us as your neighbor, as your friend, as your family member, rather than somebody distant from us? We can use language to change reality, to build community. I think, frankly, it's often what people of color most long for from majority culture Christians. Right? It's the underlying plea behind Black Lives Matter or the current conversation around DACA and Dreamers. It's the question, will you identify with us whether, as people saying that you are our neighbor, that you care for us as neighbors, as members of our family, hurt with us, suffer with us, grieve with us? You may not agree with every policy proposal that they make, but the request primarily and initially is, will you see us as neighbor? Will you use language publicly and privately to affirm our neighborliness so that we have a different conversation than being othered? Just this weekend, it was fascinating, or this last week, Christian social media, there is such a thing. It, I don't necessarily encourage you to follow it, but um, <laughs> completely blew up around um, minimizations of mental illness by two different ministries this week, one just this weekend and one in the middle of the week. And what was fascinating and so heartening to me was how in response, Literally hundreds, if not thousands of Christians then got on social media, on Twitter and Facebook with just simple words. I too have a mental illness. Whether it was uh, clinical depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, all of them started to write. And what was amazing and beautiful was as people did that, it forced a different kind of conversation. It wasn't this abstract thing about what do those kind of people need or want or how seriously should we take it, but it was your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, the people who belong to your community, experience this, survive it, thrive with it, and struggle with it. Will you see us and know us as people so that together we begin to negotiate a new future together? 
They use their words, right, to affirm community and belief and support. And I wonder if in part what Paul is doing when he says, speak truth and give grace, he's actually saying, can we use words to express those truths? Jesus commands us to say, the people around us are neighbors if we would just choose to name them as that and then to act consistently with that. Well, Paul also goes on to say, we should use our words to give grace to build up the body, right, in verse 29. And it's the community that he's concerned about building up, not just individuals. And so it's easy, I suspect, um, to think about this individually, because that's how we often read this. But when you, Paul talks about the body and being neighbors, he's really talking about what does it mean for us to use grace, to gift one another with words, to build community. In part, of course, our words are to proclaim, interpret, and apply God's work on the cross, right? And that's Paul's concern in verses 11 through 16, which we read earlier. Um, it's how apostles and evangelists, prophets, teachers, and pastors are gifted by God to bring about the unity of faith for the building of the body of Christ in verse 13. We should be proclaiming good news that actually renews community and renews people in this way. And lest it, because it often does in our culture, seem that theology is hard edged or hard-hearted or just a cause for dispute as Paul immediately goes to that in verses 31 and 32. He reminds us our words are to be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving as well. These aren't abstract things, but to them to be life-giving things. It's important for, for us to know if our words to be a gift for our community. It's not just encouragement, though that's often there, but right, this encouragement tends to be little pats on the back and um, Dick mentioned, right, there's all sorts of studies, like 10 encouraging paths for every one negative, and that's great. But as important as those are, and they are, they're the social lubricant, I think, that keeps community going. Speaking truth and grace, I think, is excavating the life-changing reality of somebody's life and bringing it to light, allowing that to transform them. It's using scripture in ways which actually excavate both grace and truth in their lives and bring healing. I think about a friend of mine named Karen. I was complaining to Karen, as I often did in those years. Um, I was busy. I was working full-time. I was leading our youth group. I was emceeing and organizing church worship services on Sunday. I think I had some other thing that I was doing. I can't even remember right now. And I was on the phone with her one day at work, and I was just kind of, you know, moaning to her. And she didn't do what I was hoping, which was commiserate, right? But that's what really you wanted. Oh, that's horrible. You sound so busy. She was silent. And I was a little disappointed until I realized she was silent because she was crying. Because later she started sobbing on the phone. And she said, um, I'm crying for you because you're so busy doing things for God that I worry so deeply that you don't know God loves you. And she was brutal in her honesty and incredibly gracious in her reminder to me of who God was and the truth that he had for me. Your workaholism, your servant-heartedness is a distraction, Greg, from actually what God might be calling you to do. Right? She called me to my face the sins that I struggled with and then reminded me of the good news of what Jesus has to accomplish. I wonder if then the most gracious words we give, as Paul encourages us to do in verse 29, those gifting words, right, those words that relieve burdens, the most powerful words are the ones that really affirm those gospel truths that we need to wrestle with. They might be very simple words like, I'm sorry. 
Because when we say I'm sorry, suddenly the opportunity for grace opens wide up, doesn't it? I'm sorry I was wrong. I forgive you. Transforms life and transforms community, doesn't it? I love you. I suspect Moto and Carrie, as we celebrate your 20th anniversary, would agree the most powerful words in marriage, I suspect, are those words. At least they're the words I have to say all the time. I'm sorry. I was wrong. And it's at that moment that the possibility for transformation occurs, right? And community is knit together. I forgive you opens a possibility for future for when the future seems closed to us. I love you. Nothing will change my commitment to you. It happens in marriages. It's what was powerful about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa as it knits together um, an entire nation. Imagine what our national discourse in this country would sound like if politicians and leaders, cultural formers and individuals would just start out every press conference with, I'm sorry and I failed. And imagine the possibilities if in our culture people said, I agree you failed, you did that intentionally, you were wrong, and I forgive you, and I'm committed to you. That's the problem and potential, though, with sticks and stones, right? They do break our bones. They're destructive and hurtful when they're thrown or used as a club, but as this building shows, sticks and stones also can be tools for building places where hospitality can be experienced, where worship can be engaged with, where healing can be offered. Sticks and stones may make my bones, and there may be the very places where healing is offered for those broken bones and broken hearts that we carried as we speak words of truth and grace to one another. Let me pray. Father, um, I think of my friend, um, Dan, who was so amazed as a child that when the doctor wanted to see how he was doing and how healthy he was, he just was told, stick out your tongue. And he thought for years that the doctor could read his health based on his tongue. Um, I pray, um, would our tongues be a symbol of our health as a congregation and as a community so that the words we use would be truthful and life-giving, um, would be honest and forthright and yet grace-filled in such a way that community is built, healing is offered, and worship um, is encouraged. Amen.